but I'm not going to tell you when I'm doing it. We're going we're gonna to swap the service around. I'm going to preach first. And then those of you that slid in here a little later are going to be like, wait, did the time change? What's going on? That's going to be fun for me. I don't know about for you, but it'll be fun for me. I hope everybody had a great uh, Memorial Day weekend. I was telling some guys this morning, like, this was one of those weeks, and it didn't dawn on me until the end of the week that it was because it was a short week where just so much was going on. You're like, wait, it's Friday? How did that happen? That's a good thing, but I'm glad, it's, I'm glad we made it to the weekend. Um, if you hadn't been here in a week or two, we're in the middle of a study of the book of James. And our focus is to think about the type of faith that James is describing in this letter, and he's writing it to the Messianic Jews, those who had been or still were by heritage Jewish people, but began to believe that Jesus was the Son of God uh, as he proclaimed to be. Um, it's widely believed that this, this was in fact the first letter of the New Testament that was written, that it was written before all the other Gospels and everything else, um, and that Jesus' brother James had become the leader of the Messianic Jews, and so he writes this book, this modern-day wisdom literature, to help these people understand what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And we talked about this, about this last week, but I want us to, to realize that James's intent was to kind of define what it looks like to be a follower because for generations, the people that had been in charge of the church, the religious leaders, were not authentic. Remember, we talked about last week that Jesus described them as whitewashed tombs. They were clean and looked good on the outside, but they were full of death and bones on the inside. And that's, and I shared with you last week that the temptation that we are all going to face as we move through this book is to look at it as a list of things to do, right? And, and to say, okay, I need to act this way and try to put that on ourselves. And we may last for a day or two or maybe even a week. But if we move in that direction, what we're going to end up doing is making ourselves Pharisees, where we're, we look good on the outside, we're checking the boxes as so it appears to everybody else, but what's on the inside has not changed. And that's not our goal in, our stu- in this study. We want to move through this study and let Jesus conform who we are on the inside. As James describes these things, as he talks about what a follower looks like, it's so that people can use it to say, I, I see that this is what Jesus' followers do. I don't do that. I, that is not in me. So Jesus, do that in me. Do you see the difference? Rather than us try to do it, ask God to do it on the inside. Our goal in this study is to develop true faith. And true faith develops as we encounter the truth of the gospel, and then we apply that to our daily lives as we're abiding. So the clear distinction I want to make here this morning as we, as we move forward, and I'm going to remind us of this probably every week because it's so significant, is that our goal is not to, for us to conform our lives to a model, but it's for us to see the truth in the gospel and then ask Jesus to conform our lives to who he is. Y'all follow me on that? Everybody tracking? Okay, good. Last week we talked about wisdom and our need for it, and I bet nobody left here shocked with the revelation that we need more wisdom, right? We all do. We learn that James refers not just to worldly wisdom, but a very specialized wisdom that comes only from God. And we distinguish the difference between worldly vision and God-given, worldly wisdom and godly-given wisdom. And we'll touch on that again a little bit later. But worldly wisdom comes from our experience. It's knowledge and the application of knowledge and experience that we make in our own lives. Whereas godly wisdom is God's experience and knowledge and him applying that in our lives. You see the difference? It's not our experience, not our knowledge. It's God's experience and God's knowledge as he works that through us. That's godly wisdom. And there's a huge difference between the two. We also talked about doubt and its role in receiving anything from God. 
James coined this phrase of being double-minded, quote-unquote, and he said specifically that a person who has such a mind won't receive anything from God. We also saw that Jesus taught the same thing about faith. And you know, it, it occurred to me this week as I was kind of thinking back through that message that thinking about this idea of trusting God and how foundational that is to our restoration. For years, we've talked about how God's goal from the time Adam and Eve chose to, to sin until Jesus' death and resurrection was to redeem us, to restore us back to himself. And this idea of trusting God, of having faith in God is foundational because the way Satan convinced Adam and Eve to disobey God was to call into question what God said. And that's significant because we still are fighting that same battle today. We saw, sang songs this morning about God's goodness and about building our life upon his firm foundation of love. Satan's constant goal in our lives is to whisper in our ear and tell us that the things that God says can't be trusted. That's the same tactic he's had since the beginning. And that's why it's so important for us to learn to develop true faith because it's us learning as we abide, as we live with God, to trust him in the things that he says. Our desire to grow in faith is a, de a desire to know God as he intended us to know him. And that journey that we're all on is going to continue until the day that we die. That's going to be a continual process. It's not going to end. I also want to mention just kind of as an aside because it came up in, in life group this week that there's a difference between trusting God or having faith in God and discerning what God is saying. And I think that that's a distinction that ought to be made, and I'll clarify that. If you're asking God for a direction in your life, but you're unsure what he's saying, that's not a lack of faith. That's just that you're in the discernment process. You're still asking questions. That's, that process of discernment is a really good process to say, God, I think this might be what you're saying, but I'm not completely sure. Can you keep talking to me about that? That's good, Okay. Whenever we, we talk about having faith, we don't want to shortcut that step. In fact, you probably heard Josh and Lana talk about waiting for God to speak in their testimony a few weeks ago. Doubt, on the other hand, is when we know what God has said, but you're not sure if it can happen. You see the difference? One is trying to figure out what God's saying, and the other one is knowing what God's saying and saying, I don't know if that can, if that can happen that way. I think it's worth mentioning that if, you, if you've recognized that you're doubting, that's also a good thing. Because being aware of the problem is the first step to solving the problem, right? So if you're in a place in your life where God has spoken something, and you're just not sure if it can happen, it's like the story we looked at, I don't know, a couple of months ago, where the man said, Jesus, I want to believe, help my unbelief. Is that we get to have an opportunity to say to God, God, I, I hear what you're saying, and I want to trust you, but I'm just not there yet, and let him work that in you. God wants us to know him, and by virtue of that relationship, trust him. Again, I'm going back to that idea of God's not asking us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. If you lack faith, ask for it. If you're not sure what God's saying, ask him. All of this depends on whose activity? His, right? Not our own. That's the goal. So James starts this letter by addressing trials, and he brings in the idea of wisdom. And we're, we're going to see today that he turns briefly to talk about our possessions and our status. These few verses can, when you look at them in context of everything else, when you first read it, they're going to seem out of place. But I think when we take into account what he says before, and then what he's going to say after that we'll get to in the next couple of weeks, that they are connected. 
James addresses both the poor and the wealthy in verses 9, 10, and 11. So let's look at that section today, and then we're going to jump into to what James is saying. So this is James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. It says, Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind, dries up the grass. Its flower falls off, and the beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. So in this passage, James is addressing two different people, two different groups of people in different socioeconomic groups. Okay, there's the poor and there's the wealthy. And he offers encouragement to them both. And we'll, it may not have felt that way when he talks about humiliation, but we'll see that in a minute. But he offers encouragement to them both because they're going to one day experience a, what I'm going to call a great reversal, okay? I want, to, I want you to think about for just a moment, we're going, to, we're going to jump to an illustration because I want you to kind of get to feel this. Raise your hand if you've ever played Uno. Okay, everybody know this card? This, yes, reverse. Reverse can be a great tool or it can be a great weapon, okay? I don't know about you, but Uno for me feels a lot like Monopoly. Like they can end relationships, I don't know, anybody else feel that way? Yeah, okay. I don't know what it is about Uno and Monopoly that the stakes feel so high, especially with Uno if you're only playing with two people. It's even it like someone's going to die before this game ends. Have you ever been in the place where when you're playing, especially just two people, like you kind of get a feel for what the other person has in the hand, what color colors they have in their hand. And, and I don't know if you've ever been there before, but it seems like both of you are holding more of the deck in your hands than there is in the draw pile. Like you're at that stage in the game and you work and you work and you work and you're playing those cards out and you kind of have an idea what they have in, in their hand and they kind of have an idea what you have in your hand by this point. And you're getting close to calling Uno and then they slap one of those or they slap down a, a, a card to change the color on you. And it's just a punk move, right? They think they know what you have and then you get to throw that reverse down and now they're the ones drawing, right? It just feels good, all right? Today we're going to talk about something similar. This is kind of what James is addressing. It doesn't matter what end of the socioeconomic scale you fall on, whether you're poor or you're wealthy. James's point is that we're all going to end up in a very similar place because everything that we think we know about life in terms of the world is going to get reversed when the kingdom of heaven comes. There's a fancy word to describe this, this theological idea. I'm going to say it one time and then we're going to move on so I don't mess it up the whole service. Okay, everybody cool with that? Okay, it's eschatological reversal. Okay, that's a really fancy way to say that our roles or status of the rich and the poor are going to reverse upon death. The poor will become rich and the rich will become like the poor. And while this may seem a little bit out there, because if you think about this in context of where we live, of American culture, this seems backwards, right? And so we're going to spend some, some time today reading through Scripture because I want you to see that this is not an idea that Will came up with, okay? I'm certainly not smart enough to make up a word like that. And it's also not an idea that James came up with. This is not his original thought. Remember, he is teaching through this letter the things that he learned while walking with his brother Jesus, right? And also, we talked about at the beginning that there was a huge emphasis on the Psalms and Proverbs in his life while he was growing up, okay? So the teaching that he's 
thinking of are from the Old Testament and also from Jesus himself. So let's consider the following verses as we think about this idea of the great role reversal from the poor and the wealthy, okay? Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 52. It says, He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. In this verse, Mary is singing her song about praise. Remember, this is when she finds out she's pregnant, and she's singing this song of praise about, uh, about Jesus. And she's referencing a passage from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7, where Samuel says, The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. Or there's Jeremiah 9, 23, where Jeremiah says, This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. Or in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, where Jesus says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Or Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Then looking up at the disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, because the kingdom of God is yours. And there's a great story, I, I really like this one, from Matthew chapter 19, verse 27 through 30. It says, Then Peter responded to him, See, we have left everything and followed you, so that what will you, excuse me, so what will there be for us? Peter's thinking about his retirement package here. He says, We've left everything to follow you, what's going to be left for us? And Jesus said to them, listen to this, Truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit, inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And then finally, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, where Timothy says, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who will richly provide us with all things to enjoy. I want to remind us this morning, I didn't, Alex didn't know it. I mean, he knew the passage, but he didn't know where I was going with this today. But I want us to remind that we all just saying that we're going to build our foundations on what? On God's love, Right? Today we're talking about wealth and we're going to talk about status and that can get a little bit uncomfortable. But James is speaking something very significant. We see God speaking through prophets, through Jesus, and through the apostles that his kingdom is going to flip this world upside down. As we talked about earlier, since the fall, we have been focused on building up kingdoms for ourselves. And that's a problem. Even if a person doesn't have much, That's often what they focus on. You talk to somebody who doesn't have very much money and what do they want to try to do? They want to get more money, right? They think that that's going to make life easier. If you talk to somebody who does have some money, what do they want? They want to get some more money because they think it'll make life easier, right? And I know that sounds like a really negative thing, but if we're honest with ourselves, that's all in us a little bit, right? James is drawing our attention to two common themes to remind people that gaining more isn't the goal in life. Those two themes that we're going to talk about today are the brevity of life, the fact that death is the great equalizer. Who wants to talk about that? Okay. And then secondly, worldly status means nothing in the kingdom of God. We'll talk about brevity of life in a moment, but let's focus first on status. If you've been around our st- for our study of Ecclesiastes, I'm sure you're going to remember the author talking about this idea of wealth and status, status and then not really living up to the hype. And we're going to 
we're going to look at that in just a second. But one of our commentaries that I read this week drew on this same idea as well. He said, the poor man may say he would not mind swapping his problems for those of the rich. But the Bible is clear that the problems of prosperity are as keen as those of the stringent. Indeed, they constitute, if anything, a more insidious threat to a committed life with God. Here's the point. Here's what he's saying is, if you are poor and you think that money will fix your problems, if you get more money, what you're going to realize is that you still got problems. They're just different problems. That's the issue. All of us are going to have problems or trials, as James would say it, whether you're wealthy or not. You may know this to be true. I can tell you from my own adult experience that you're going to have difficulties no matter how much money or status you have. I often think back to when Bethany and I first got married. Sometimes I get the numbers wrong, but you'll get the idea with this. When we first got married, we lived in, in student housing on campus, and together we made, I think, just at $1,000 before taxes, and our rent was over half of that. Okay? We were broke. Broke as a joke. In fact, most I wouldn't say most, half of the nights of the week, we were at my parents' house eating dinner there because we didn't have money to buy food. But guess what? We loved life. It was so much fun. Now, we're in a different place today. I still don't make a ton of money, but we're not as broke as we were back then. And you know what's true about then and what's true about now? I still got problems in my life. And the amount of money that I made has not changed the fact that I have problems. My problems are different, but I still got them. And the same is true for you. Let me tell you what else is true about my life is I was incredibly happy back then and I'm incredibly happy today and the amount of money that I bring in every month did not change that. The amount of stuff that I have now doesn't change that. Back when we first got married, I was really a nobody and I'm not really a somebody now, but I'm elevated a little bit more in my life in terms of the people that, that I work with and that work under me. But guess what? That hadn't really changed anything either. Look with me at this, this passage from Ecclesiastes. This is, we talked about this when we studied this book, most likely written by King Solomon. He says, I increased my achievements. I built houses and I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate the grove of flourishing trees I've acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned livestock, large herds and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and had many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Here's what I want us to, to kind of get into our hearts today. That there's a common theme in our culture that professes that if we can just get more we'll be happier than we are right now. And we talked about this when we were going through the book of Ecclesiastes in the middle of COVID. But more stuff doesn't make us happier. King Solomon would, would disagree with our American culture that if we had more, we could, we could be more. He had more than any of us could ever hope to attain. And at the end, he found all of it was hevel. Remember, we described that as, as a breath in the wind. 
here for a moment and then gone. Look at what he says just a few chapters later in that book. He says, better is a poor but wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer pays attention to warnings. The author of Ecclesiastes makes it very clear that wealth and status do not bring lasting joy, that people assume that it will. The other theme that James uses is the brevity of life. You know, my, my dad and, and others when I was young told me that as I got older, time would seem to pass quicker. Have you guys, have you guys figured that out yet? Miss Debbie's looking at me like, you don't even know yet, okay? It seems like just a couple of years ago, my kids were being born, and now I've got three teenagers in my house. It doesn't seem like enough time has passed for that to happen. And if you've gone through uh, an event in your life that would be something that we would consider life-altering, like an illness or the death of someone significant, you also understand that the way you view life changes during those events. And the things that you once thought were important are not so important anymore. Look at these verses that James would have been taught growing up. These are from Isaiah and Psalms and then one from Job. Isaiah 46 through 7 says, A voice was saying, cry out. Another said, what should I cry out? All humanity is grass and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. Or Psalm 102, 11, my days are like a lengthening shadow and I wither away like grass. Or Psalm 102, verse 4, my heart is suffering, withered like grass, I even forget to eat my food. Or Psalm 103, 15, as for man, his days are like grass, he blooms like a flower of the field. Or Job 14, 2, he blossoms like a flower, then withers, he flees like a shadow and does not last. Isaiah, David, Job, and many others all came to find that life is incredibly short and fragile. And James wants us to take, wants us to take into consideration as we make decisions about how we're going to live life, what life is really about. Do we want to spend our entire lives building up a kingdom for ourselves only to lose it when we die? James is using these themes of brevity and status to remind the church of something that's vitally important. The things that you can gain and possess in this world are not important because your life will be over before you know it. I know that seems really dark to think about, but it's the reality that we live in. I can only imagine 20 years from now how quickly my life seems that it will be passed. 20 years from now, I'll be almost 60 years old. That seems insane to me, okay? Because it feels like I'm only 20, but I'm not. I'm twice that, almost. We, we get this idea in our mind, church, that life is going to be really, really long, and we got all the time in the world to build up and to get, gain all the things and all the stuff that we want. And what James is trying to help us understand, what Jesus was trying to help us understand, what the prophets before Jesus were trying to help us understand is that life is not about us and what we can gain. It's about developing our relationship with God. Remember, James is addressing these people who are going through various trials. Many of them either still lived in exile or their families had just gotten out of exile. And when that happens, you lose everything. And so he's addressing both people who had a lot and people who didn't have a lot. And he's telling both of them, what you have is not significant. 
Because if you're poor, when you get to heaven, you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. If you're rich, when you die, all of that stuff stays on earth. And guess what? You inherit the kingdom of God. What we have here right now is not the most significant things in our lives. Look at, the, look at James, what James says again with me. He says, let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. He's talking specifically about the fact that we are told that when we die, we're going to inherit the kingdom of God. So if you've got nothing now, you're still going to inherit the kingdom. And he says, but, the, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind, he dries up the grass. Its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. So far in this book, James is focused on joy and wisdom. And he's reminding the church members that whether you're poor or rich, rich, you shouldn't put your faith in what you do or do not have. He's using imagery that would have been incredibly graphic for the audience he's talking to. They all lived in Judea, which is a desertous reason. If you've ever been to a desert or an arid environment, you can, you can imagine this in your mind. I was thinking about this this morning. We went to Joshua Tree National Park and Saguaro National Park a couple of years ago, three, four years ago now. And those are arid areas. And I noticed something about all the plants there that it just kind of popped in my head today. You think about those cactuses especially. Those things are hard, right? They're hardy. They're not like the petunias and the daisies and stuff that we plant here. And you know why that is? Because that stuff will die from the heat and the wind. But the cactuses are a little bit more robust and they last in that area. And so James is making this illustration to the church. He's saying, look, those riches, those statuses, those things that you feel are so important, you can work on building that stuff up, but it's going to be like a flower that blooms in the desert. Within a few hours, it will be gone. James is telling the readers to put their faith in Jesus. If they're poor, they can boast in the fact that one day they're going to inherit the kingdom of God. If they're wealthy, they can boast. He says your hum their humiliation. And that has a really negative connotation. I told you we get back to this. What that word really is communicating is, is the fact that they are just like everybody else. It can also be defined as commonality. He's saying don't boast in your wealth. Boast in the fact that you're like everybody else. We're all going to get the same thing at the end. In modern translations, yeah, it's written as humiliation. But it doesn't really fit the context of what James is saying when we translate it that way. James is addressing a group of people that would have had life on both ends of that spectrum. He's reminding them, he's reminding us, don't put your focus, don't spend your life building up a kingdom for yourself, pursuing stuff, because you're going you're gonna to spend your life, just like this week, I shared with you guys a while ago, I worked so hard this week on a million different things, literally going in all directions at once, trying to fix other people's problems, which is part of my job, I love it, okay, it makes me feel good when I can be the hero, but I was pulled in a million directions this week, and all of a sudden I look up, and my week is gone. What a great illustration for our entire lives. That we're going to spend our whole lives building up something that we think is going to make us happy, only to realize that our whole life has passed and we've been focused on the wrong thing. That's what James is trying to help the church understand. That's what he's wanting us to understand today. I want to look back at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. We read this a few minutes ago because I love the way Timothy puts this. He said, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, 
but on God who richly provides us with all the things to enjoy. When we're looking at our own lives, when I'm looking at my life, when you're looking at your life, consider where you are today in your faith journey. Where are you in your relationship with God? We can apply this message from James by asking just one simple question. Am I putting my faith in my wealth and status or am I putting it in Jesus? Am I building my life on the firm foundation of God's love or the firm foundation of my hard work? That's what we got to ask ourselves. It doesn't matter what end of the socioeconomic scale you find yourself on if you're really poor or really wealthy. The reality, the reality is that all of us need to trust Jesus more than we do right now. Whatever's going on in your life regarding your finances or social status, ask yourself, if you are trusting God or your own ability to provide for yourself or your family. God wants us to experience the joy of living in a relationship with him. As we figure out this thing called life, God's intent for us is to enjoy him in a relationship, not to just chase stuff. You and I all are in the same boat. Our financial stability plays a major role in our lives. I'm not sugarcoating that fact, right? We all have to pay our bills. But how we choose to go about that and the, the priority that that plays in our lives, the focus that we give that is significant. We're taught from an early age to consider those things. And I think James is making the statement that, based, that to live based on the criteria of that criteria is worldly wisdom. To just spend your whole life thinking about moving A to B to C in terms of the things that you can get out of the world. We've heard testimony of how many of us have experienced God providing for us when we just thought we couldn't make ends meet. Josh and Lana spoke directly to that a few weeks ago. A really powerful story about God's provision in their life since he told them to quit their jobs and how he's providing for them. I want us to be reminded today that God has our best in his mind and he can provide all that we need. We don't need to put our trust just in our jobs. We need to put our trust in Jesus because he's the one who gives us those jobs. He's the one who determines all of that in our lives. But in order to do that, we've got to let him adjust our perspective and to help to let him determine for us what is enough. I, I was thinking a lot about a particular family, I'm not going to say any names, that I've had some conversations this week with who are contemplating job changes, and it's going to be a pay cut. And that's a difficult thing to think about, right? I've been there before. I'm sure you have too. Because this person is thinking about their family. They're thinking about the long-term effects this pay cut could have on them. And so for me, as I'm writing this message today, that's heavy on my mind because what I say matters in that person's life, right? I'm speaking for God. i got to get this right. And what I was sharing with that person this week and what I want you to hear me say today is, is that if, if you go to just people like me or just people in your life and you ask them for their advice, it might be good worldly advice. It might be good worldly wisdom. But we talked about last week that God's wisdom is so much greater than that. And as we're thinking about our financial status, as we're thinking about our social status, we need to put that stuff at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, what do you want to do with me, with my life in this moment right now? Like I said a while ago, he's got our best in mind. But if we're only listening to our voice, we're not going to get his best. We're going to only get our best. My best ain't as good as God's best, right? 
God can be our treasure and we'll find his joy in all that we desire in our relationship with him if we will choose to put him first in our life. If we will choose to trust in him, to put our faith in him, to build our foundations on what he can do. Because at the end of life, there's going to be a great reversal. And all the things that we've worked for our whole life are going to disappear. And they're not even going to matter anymore. It's not like you're going to miss it. You won't even remember it. Let's pray. God, it's challenging to think about our finances, to think about where we're placing our trust. God, I ask that in my own life and the lives of my brothers and sisters that you would begin to, to speak into the areas where we haven't put our trust in you. God, that you would reveal that to us and give us the courage to trust you. The places in our lives where we lack faith, God, build that faith up. For those that are in our body that are discerning what to do with their jobs, with social things, God, I ask that you would speak into all of that and you would give each of us a desire to pursue you in that, to seek out your wisdom and not our own and not the world's. God, reveal yourself in our lives as we do the normal, mundane, day-to-day making decisions. God, show yourself in that. Let us learn more about who you are. In your name we pray. Amen.